Uh, and it is a kind of touch. Hearing is touch. Yeah. But it's just transduced in a bizarre and really cool way. That's fascinating. I can't think of any more human activity than conducting science experiments. The game I play is a very interesting one. It's imagination in a tight straitjacket. The beauty of a living thing is not the atoms that go into it, but the way those atoms are put together. What I always think should be the basis of education is not answers, but questions. We should teach kids how to question. Well, uh, today on the show we have uh, Tara Hamilton, who's recently been appointed as Associate Professor at Macquarie University. Yep. Yeah, congratulations. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> How are you finding it there? It's great, yeah. yeah. The food options are better. Yeah? Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's true, isn't it? So you were, re you were at Western Sydney before. What campus were you on? I was on, on uh, Kingswood and then we moved to Warrington and Warrington is... Sort of like tumbleweeds. Yeah. Yeah. There's, yeah. there's, there's lots of kangaroos. Yeah. That's oh, all I can say for it. I heard kangaroo meat tastes real <laughs> delicious. <laughs> yeah, there was a few PhD students that were driving around trying to trying to knock them over to. You know. <laughs> yeah, we, we were there. The, we were there the other night at the observatory, and yeah, yeah. we saw heaps of kangaroos. It's, it's kind of yeah. nice. Yeah, joeys and things like that cool, as well. Yeah. 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 No, it's cool. Um, so, so let's start with your journey. Um, what got you interested in science? Is this even recorded? Yeah. What got you interested in science? Um, were you? Did you have some sort of um, role models that kind of pushed you into this path, or did you, uh, you know, look, look at TV shows and pop culture that influenced you into this path? What was it for you? Uh, for me, I mean, we had a big backyard growing up, and so I just spent lots of time dissecting snails and things, and wow. I, and I think that that just sort of. I just had this inquiring kind of mind that just was always, you know, kind of... I still do it now. I was doing it with my kids yesterday, just sitting on the grass, watching what's alive down there and yeah. following it and seeing what, what's going on. And Yeah, and I, and, I, and I loved Lego. So I think Lego coupled with, yeah, just, just loving how, you know, how does something work? That's, yeah. Wait, I, I just have to say, okay... <laughs> First of all, Alex dissects, used to dissect shit all the time yeah, when he was yeah. a little kid. <laughs> but second of all, it's interesting because um, when we went to your team meeting when you were at um, WSU, that whole um, group deals with neuromorphic engineering. Yeah. And right there at, at its foundation, you have <laughs> Legos, which kind of is like engineering, right? And biology. And biology. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's it. Yeah, so it was predestined, I think. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, my son's really into Lego as well. And something you, you or we both probably missed out on was um, Minecraft when we oh, were growing yeah. up. And he's like yeah. gotten right into that yeah. now. It's just My like, kids are only small, but I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, mine, yeah. mine are only two and a half, but uh, yeah. 
say that I was looking forward to it too. I'm like, I've got, I've got to get them into Minecraft. It's going to be so great. Yeah. And now I can't even like get them to do their homework. And it's a massive <laughs> issue. They're on it like 24-7. It's crazy. Yeah. Speaking about Minecraft, my little nephew, he's about six. Um, and he uh, watches these videos of you know people playing Minecraft Jeez. on on YouTube. And now he's got an American accent. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, I've, he I've heard that one from parents before. Like... Just, just watching Sesame Street. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so the American like kind of culture is taking over, yeah. <laughs> indoctrinating our children. What do we do? Yeah. So you had this interest ever since you were a child. How did this get developed as you grew older? Um, I'm old enough to have had teachers that, you know, tie, had have their hands tied by naplan and things. So my teachers, like fairly early on, when I was like in year three year four like recognized that i was a little bit different <laughs> um and in, in in third grade it was when hallie's comet was flying over um and i was really into it for the whole year and i hallie's comet everything so that whole year i the art worker hallie's comet the teacher would just <laughs> let me do hallie's comet all year yeah. i don't even know what else happened i don't know what the class <laughs> was doing i just did hallie's comet all year uh so i i was kind of lucky to sort of have the kind of freedom to explore what I was interested in at mm. school and I think that's really important for kids and mm. yeah for me that just helped me uh, you know be comfortable with the fact that I was a bit of a nerd mm. and uh, you know embrace it embrace my inner nerd and yeah yeah it's really important like how much teachers can influence people yeah, like absolutely. giving like when a teacher recognizes a skill or a passion in yeah. a student they really give them the means to kind of to, to, in, yeah, explore, to explore that it can change it, yeah. their whole life as, yeah, yeah. I, know, I think it did yeah something yeah. Is, is sort of at such a young age but i think it had a huge influence on just just i mean it taught me how to be a researcher in year three i don't know how yeah. old that is what yeah. is that like nine years old eight years old yeah so yeah it was it was pretty influential for, yeah. for what so was did you oh sorry before you go yeah it's it's interesting because the education system kind of like worked out for you, right? Yes, it did. Whereas we had um, uh, <laughs> Lisa, so yeah. Lisa Harvey Smith, yeah. um, who was homeschooled because when she was doing um, when she went to high school, they would they, they would get the girls to do all like the typical stereotypical girl things and the guys to do this, you know, and she found that it it hindered her oh, and you I, yeah. I, I don't know how common I, I think I would hope that all teachers when they see students like just obsess about one thing and you know want to like just learn about something rather than stifling it and saying oh learn this stuff you know you have to learn this other stuff yeah they kind of like feed that drag and let it like yeah especially when you're so young as well mm. like you know it's not like yeah. you're going to miss out on anything too super important. Yeah, exactly yeah. right. <laughs> and children are naturally inquisitive, yeah. so it's like really important to yeah. kind of like drive that. I they're, think they're scientists when they come out, and yeah. I think the education system beats it out of them. Yeah, <laughs> yeah like, you've got to learn this. You've got to yeah. learn this. Yeah. Stop yeah. thinking. Yeah. Stop being yeah. curious. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's yeah. Interesting. So, so it was... Was there a time, um, I'm assuming that kind of drove your passion into uh, engineering and science. Was, was there a time when you decided to become a researcher or was that like very early on as well? Like, no, not at all. Yeah. So I, I went to, so it's interesting you talk about high school. I went to an all girls school, which I think has a different dynamic in terms of, I was terrible at the sewing and the cooking. <laughs> I, I really was bad. You went through that as well. Yeah, yeah I oh was awful at it. And uh so i i remember i got in trouble because I, I 
I kind of paid a friend to to do my sewing project <laughs> for me. <laughs> um, but that sort of let me kind of do my maths and, and that sort of thing. But actually, at high school, I was uh, really into economics and drama and. Um, and yeah, I didn't know what I was going to do. Uh, and so being an engineer wasn't actually like for the HSC, I did maths, English, drama and economics. I yeah. didn't actually do any sciences. Oh, wow. Um, and so, yeah, like uh, when I got to the end of it, it was sort of like, now what am I going to do? Um, and I got a scholarship from uh, Sydney Electricity, which was Energy Australia, which is now Aus Osgrid. And that decided it i'm gonna do electrical engineering yeah. that wasn't even something i was necessarily passionate about at the start i was always passionate about finding out how things worked but it didn't matter what that thing was yeah. and then yeah i i, I didn't want to be a researcher i finished my undergrad and and went and worked for cochlear that make the bionic ears yeah. and i worked there for five years and that's such a full of really interesting people that know lots of stuff and it's sort of as time went by, I realized how little I knew about biology and how much I wanted to know about biology. Yeah. So I went back and did a master's at UNSW in biomedical engineering. Yeah. And then and then that was it. Like, you know, I, the, the, the flame had been lit and I yeah. just <laughs> wanted to know more about everything. And, and then I decided to do a PhD. But it oh, was a very... Zigzaggy, cool. yeah. Zigzag I have, yeah. Yeah. Well, I have a, an interesting uh, similar parallel story yeah. because I didn't do any science in my HSC either. Right, yeah. And I was kind of like, took this music option. And I, I did, um, I was attending a, a music undergrad at Western Sydney when I first left high school. And yep. But then, you know, like jobs in music. So I was kind of like, oh, I need some like day job to get by. And then kind of diverged into like lab tech, and then did a like TAFE course, and then I, you know, progress in that field a bit. I'll go to uni, and then you get bitten by like that research yeah, bug, and yeah. then just <laughs> and okay, then change yeah. the whole course of my life. Yeah, you don't yeah. expect to be where you end up, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's interesting how it works out like that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but that's really cool. So, did you find? So you found out that you didn't know much about biology. How is that accumulating that knowledge and combining it with the, your engineering knowledge? How has that kind of shaped I you mean, as a person? I think, uh, like my my thing is, is that everything is actually the same. We just all talk different. Like you know, if you just, if you look at physics, it has a particular vernacular around physics, and so they use particular words to describe things, but the same things are actually happening in biology, but we do use different words to describe that. Yeah. And most of the time it's just a, a language problem more than anything else. Because when I started doing sort of, uh, you know, clinical laboratory science and stuff, I, I realized how similar some of the problems were to engineering, like, mm. you know, electrical engineering problems or something like that. But it was just phrased differently and it was in a different, you know, obviously a different vessel yeah. <laughs> but it was very similar kind of problem so I, I've I found like I've always really sucked badly at chemistry because it doesn't sort of fit that mathematical framework yeah. but everything that fits a mathematical framework I feel like I'm quite comfortable with it yeah. and I can just you know flip over so yeah. just can you give us an example because Alex and I will kind of think like um, having the conversation along the same lines of what you're saying but give us an example of similarities that you say uh, that you that you saw in these different fields okay so uh i mean I, I guess you know i'm a neuromorphic engineering so one of the the classics is is just how neurons communicate and uh you know there's a protocol there and it's it, there's sort of information theory and there's like little packets and and you you need to to, to have a insulated 
you know, you need the myelin sheath around mm. it. Otherwise, you, you have Alzheimer's or something terrible. You know, like yeah. that you have to insulate wires in, in your computer. Otherwise, yeah. you know, it's, it's chaos in there. So it's really, you know, it, it's a, it's the systems are the, kind of the same. You, you're transporting information mm. from different, you know, the, the way we set up the system, like a computing system is quite different. Mm. But in terms of like, if you get down to the, like the individual transistors, the, the differences are, you know, like a transistor is basically an ion channel, and mm. you know, so, and the mathematics are the same, uh, mm. ion channel and transistor. So, uh, yeah, like that—that's kind of the the classic neuromorphic example of how how, yeah, our communication, our electrical communication system in our brains, or in our nervous systems generally, is is so similar to to yeah. the things that we build and microphones, mm. your computers and things. Yeah. That's um. Before you go, I was just going to build on that thought. So Alex and I were in the car the other day. We finished teaching and we we're just talking, and they're like, "It's we're talking about how um was about there was he was talking about some article um in the Embraer's that some student I don't know was talking about or whatever about how metaphors are so important for science. Yeah. Um, and what they kind of like um bring out and make apparent is that there are these patterns that we see in the universe repeating at different scales. Yeah. You know, things like messenger RNA or messenger molecules. Well, the reason why we call them messenger molecules in the first place is because there's something analogous to that at a, at a bigger scale. Yeah. And that thing might exist even at a phys like in physics, you know, the, uh, the interactions between like two electrons, you know, the photons that get passed on from one, one electron to another, maybe it's messenger as well. It's like the same patterns you see mm. over and over and over again. And like you're saying, it's like a different language game. Yeah. It's a different sort of um, frame that we're but looking the at it, the the, but the patterns yeah, are exactly absolutely. the same. Absolutely, yeah. And yeah. once you realize that, you realize how it's all kind of accessible to you then, because, mm. you know, I... I don't claim to be an expert in anything particular, but I can get my head around it and I can read a paper and I can go, oh, that's really similar to that. And mm. then it all makes sense to me. And mm. it really helps crystallize concepts. Mm. To go back to, because you gave the example before about the transistor, but mm. um, perhaps another example of this is neural networks. Yeah. Um, and we've had quite a few uh, guests on who have talked about neural networks, but we haven't ever really just broken down what a neural network is yeah. and, and how it is kind of analogous to um, biological systems. Uh, would you like to? <laughs> Take a shot. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, it's funny. Neural networks is really buzz now with deep learning and stuff. Yeah. But, like, I, I, I learned them back, you know, early 2000s when they weren't mm. as cool because we didn't have the computing power. Mm, yeah. Um, but the, the, the basic sort of idea about neural networks is, is all about parallel computation. And it's all about having individual neurons that take little chunks of information and together they can you know we can we can use mathematics to kind of see what the pattern is at the end mm. so in our brains one neuron probably isn't doing that much but a, a, a collection of neurons working together that's what gives us a, our signal so sometimes yeah. it's all about like sometimes it's about the technicalities of signal to noise the fact that you have a lot of stochasticity in your inputs mm. and so then you need a lot of little units in order to translate that. Um, in, in neural networks, because we don't necessarily have the, the noise that we do in our biological systems, uh, a lot of the little, little nodes are all about 
transforming that information and, and if you sort of do a mathematical transformation on information you can start to separate different things and, and find patterns yeah. and it's very similar concept to what's going on in the brain in that we're getting lots of information and it's all somehow combining and part of that is just because we're doing all these transformations we're using a lot of populations of neurons in order to to both spread the information out so it's like statistics almost mm. um, but also allows us to see when we've got temporal similarities you know neurons that fire together wire together and, and so you're able to actually say hey this thing's related to this thing and, and that same sort of concept yeah. is 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 certainly becoming quite prevalent in the artificial networks that we're making yeah so are they trying to replicate the the randomness that biology has in, in neural networks. I don't think they're doing enough because I think the randomness is really important because a lot of the problem with the deep networks and things that you find is that they're kind of overtrained for the task. Whereas, like, general intelligence will come from being able to generalize concepts. And mm. part of what's nice about having noise is that it allows you to kind of spread, spread your signal a bit mm. and, and look at. Uh, the statistics of your input and how they relate rather than this is the, you know, like if, if you mm. look on YouTube, like dog faces, like, mm. you know, you could be, you could kind of tailor a system that does it really well, but it, 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 if, if you throw it a cat, it sort of freaks out, yeah. you know, it's, oh, that's a dog too, yeah. or, you know, or, or just anything that you haven't trained it with. And mm. that's because it, it doesn't really have that generalizable yeah. intelligence and I think part of that is because like our brain does it well because it's just so used to dealing with like noisy yeah. signals yeah. Mm. Oh, that's so it, it almost seems analogous and correct me if I'm mistaken so the randomness in the signal um, or the noise you know actually it's almost like the mutations that it organisms kind of experience that let them that allow them to adapt to the environment Whereas, like, if you take away that randomness, then they become so specialized in one niche environment that as soon as you change the environment, they freak out and die. It also sounds like a bit of a trade-off, isn't it? Because yeah. then you've got, um, if you train a system, it'll do the job well straight away yeah. and you'll, it'll do the job exactly what you want, but then it won't be able to cope very well with these differences. Exactly, yeah. Or if you let it learn, I think, which is what you're alluding to by making mistakes and kind of growing, yeah. might have a more generalized intelligence, but I guess it could probably takes longer. Exactly, yeah. And that's that's the thing that I think everybody's grappling with now. Like the artificial intelligence is good in very niche things that we've trained it on, but if if you want really true uh, artificial intelligence, you really need to kind of let it go and let it learn for itself which is yeah. extraordinarily scary yeah. you know, because we're not exactly sure how these things work you know yeah. so yes that's how skynet got created yeah. <laughs> i was just about to say that you know? that is incredibly scary because if you develop an artificial um intelligence system that is going to be faster or smarter than us then it probably wants to get out you yeah. know it probably wants to start doing shit that um that is in conflict with our interests and what if it decides to just like uh, kill everyone to do whatever I don't know to save the earth because it's only like survival is contingent on the survival of the isn't earth there a, um, isn't that Dolores there's a there, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, <laughs> the, the paper, there's the idea of the paperclip maximizer as well like yes. you, you build a machine that um, is, is to 
make paper clips and it, it it's an artificial intelligence and it decides the best way to make paper clips is to convert every single molecule in the universe to into a paper clip and that includes humans right yeah, so yeah. yeah there's always those unintended risks that you you're not sure you're right not all sure, i want to yeah. do is make an ai that builds the most paper clips possible yes. but then it like takes off creates super intelligence yeah. and decides the best way to do that is to exterminate every yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah Maybe we can transition into what, um, so you mentioned the cochlea. Yep. Um, tell us about that. Because yeah, yeah, a lot of your um, uh, past colleagues in uh, Western Sydney were developing systems that looked at um, like insect eyes and, and trying to engineer electronic systems that mimic those types of uh, processes because there's lots of benefits that we can kind of see in biology Mm. that we can translate into engineering Um, and uh, so your work's focused a little bit more on the ear in with in that respect or Um, it it has Uh, so my PhD was uh, modeling the cochlea which is a kind of obvious step for someone that spent five years working at cochlea (laughs) although afterwards I was really sick of the cochlea (laughs) Um, but uh, but yeah so I mean the ear is an amazing organ in terms I mean it's basically uh, you know it's just it's it's its purpose is to improve signal to noise ratio like everything about it is is um, and it it does it in quite an interesting way like other kinds of sort of sensory systems are, are kind of you know there's there's sort of neurons in my finger well there's nerves in my finger and and they're right under there and you know whereas the ear it does all this pre-processing stuff which yeah. is kind of do you want to break that down a bit for us like yeah how does the how does the ear work so you've got a sound is is, is basically a wave that's vibrating our eardrum and then there's this mechanical system so there's these three little bones um that transduce that into a, basically it's a, a pulling and a pushing motion on a little, um, on a little, I guess a little plunger thing, um, which which holds the fluid, sorry, of the, of the cochlea. So the cochlea mm. is filled with fluid. Mm. And as this pressure wave gets transduced into it, um, there's a membrane inside it. And the membrane is, again, it's, it's, it's mechanical. So at the, at the beginning of the membrane, it's quite, uh, inflexible and, and stiff and then by the time you get to the end of it it's a lot more flexible so mm. the beginning part of the cochlea really responds well to high frequencies and the, the end part responds really well to low frequencies um, and it's kind of you know I think just for packing reasons it's sort of uh, it's snail shaped yeah. um, it's it's very small um, and then inside on that membrane you have these little what we call hair cells but it basically when they get vibrated depending on where they are on, on the cochlea, uh, on the basilar membrane. Um, they open ion channels, which then, um, yeah, which then connect, which basically transduce uh, everything mechanical into an electrical signal and, mm. and, and then connect to, to the rest of the, your auditory uh, um, nerve. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's a fascinating system, isn't it? Yeah. So you've got this like pressure wave kind of coming in from outside and that pressure wave could be at different frequencies so with those really high frequencies that we hear and the really low frequencies Um, and then that pressure wave is moving the the bone I think you just described it as what was that a suction yeah, yeah, it's yeah. like a little plunger thing. Yeah, plunger, yeah, yeah, yeah. So the bones are kind of moving this, this. Uh, and that's pushing the fluid, is it? Yeah. yeah. So then that creates a, a wave within within the cochlea. In yeah. That co- so that fluid is like a, a 
kind of a, a salty fluid yeah. um, that it itself also has. There's a lot in. There's a lot going on in there. Yeah. Um, but it sort of has. There's different ionic concentrations between the above the bezel membrane and behind. So oh, it actually is a battery as well. Yeah. So it's sort of self-powering. Wow. Yeah. It's yeah. nuts. Yeah. <laughs> so the, the plunging effect uh, uh, that 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 movement powers these cells. I mean so I, it wasn't it sorry it, 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 so the the plunger moves the fluid in the air yeah. and then that um hits the membrane which these hairs stick on if it's yeah. a high frequency that came in so it moves it, it i guess a little bit yep. and then hits the membrane and the hair early and that hair moves and converts the signal into a high frequency that we hear yeah. um but maybe we can get back onto that battery part because yeah. that sounds really <laughs> fascinating yeah yeah uh, yeah so i mean um I, I wouldn't say that it it powers it necessarily but it gives you a potential difference that that kind of allows for that um ion transport across the bezel so this is an electrical difference yeah. a difference in yeah. charge yeah. yeah yeah so it's kind of really cool that it's sort of yeah, it sort of creates its own conditions in order to do that trans transduction. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> okay, so um, that's fascinating. Uh, so you did some work on the cochlea. Now, how how is that related to engineering? Can you link those two up, please? <laughs> <laughs> no, I cannot. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I guess the cochlea has been... You know, it's it's sort of as 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 described. It's an interesting mechanical electrical system. Yeah. Um, so I, I guess part of the engineering was just trying to understand how that would work mm. and whether it was feasible to build. So my PhD was building it in silicon. So my job at Cochlea, wow. the company, was as a chip designer. So. Yeah. Um, I wanted to do a chip design PhD, so I, the, the, the main idea was to try to understand these mechanical and electrical interactions and, and develop a model so that I could put it in circuits onto a chip and perhaps use that as a kind of a, a funky front end to a, to, a, to a hearing system of some sort. Yeah. Yeah, so I guess that direct benefit then is obviously for hearing. Are there yeah. any other types of benefits between... Um, I sort of have since discovered that the, the the kind of mathematics behind how the cochlea works is related to lots and lots of other things. As we kind of mm. alluded to before, there's, there's so much uh, the same thing, the same sort of patterns in, in all sorts of systems. But it, it's quite related to, um, you know, like superconducting materials and, and things like that. So... I guess some of the work that I have done can translate quite, especially the mathematics behind it, because it's a really difficult system. Like people have approximated the cochlea using filters and things, but actually it's probably a coupled oscillator system, which is really, really hard to mathematically get your head around, especially if you assume all the oscillators are coupled to one another, which they are in the cochlear model, although they are more coupled with their sort of adjacent oscillators, but they are all connected together so it's a really difficult mathematical problem and an interesting system because there are these coupled oscillator models in kind of biology all over the place can you just describe what a coupled isolate oscillators are yeah, yeah oh, okay so they kind of got lost yeah, yeah so sorry so an oscillator i guess uh 
uh, what's a good oscillator example? Um, something that repeats over and over, yeah, right? Yeah, an oscillator. To, yeah, yeah, so I'm trying to think of something that. Uh, um, I guess if you think about pendulums, is a good one. Yeah. So, so if you have two pendulums together, uh, and I think this is like a classic. Uh, Galileo noticed this while he was sitting in church, right? So uh, if you have uh, a pendulum and another pendulum and they're kind of coupled across, a, maybe they're sitting on a wooden plank, uh, eventually they'll start oscillating together, they'll synchronize. Um, so that's a synchronized oscillator idea, but it's, it's the idea that you've got two systems that can, uh, I guess, beat or, or create a rhythm um, and they're join together somehow so like the the kind of classic Galileo idea is is mechanical so you've got pendulums or metronomes they're metronomes mm. and and a, and a plank of wood and if you put two metronomes on there they'll eventually sync up just through the kind of very weak coupling but that coupling through the wood will make them kind of synchronize so does the energy from one transfer <coughs> to the other through that connection yeah exactly yeah oh, so in the cochlea there's energy transfer in that fluid so i i tried to incorporate that by building a a, a, a sort of an electrical fluid so that you could have if, if this oscillator is is resonating so if i hit if a sound comes in that's perfect for this particular hair cell and it just goes Whoa, mm. um, that that connects to the the, the, um, the oscillators around it um, so that they sort of start to resonate a little bit too mm. and what is the point is, is that to amplify the signal yes yeah so um, as I said before the whole point of the cochlear is to try to maximize its signal to noise ratio mm. so one of the ways that it does it is that if it's a very faint sound um, not only do you get an increase in the gain in your cochlea, which is partially because of this coupling between adjacent um, little oscillators, um, but you also get more specificity. So it starts rejecting other frequencies. And, and that's why if you're in a really quiet room, like an anechoic chamber or something, your ears start to ring and it's because your, your ears are like tuning themselves up to like hear everything and yeah. ends up kind of creating its own kind of... Oh, I, th I thought I was just getting old and getting like... But is there also, is there also a dulling effect? Yes. Yeah. yeah. So, so it can dampen as well. So, so, and 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 this is a, another reason why their coupled behavior is kind of interesting. So, mm. if it's very loud, you get a very damped response, and your ear will try to reject as much of it as possible. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. So this this amplification of the signal does that also mean that we can't distinguish between the frequencies as well because hairs surrounding that particular hair are also being activated? They well, see, my model showed. And it's been showed by, uh, you know, uh, measuring, I think, chinchillas, which are kind of interesting little fuzzballs. Um, but that the best frequency is at static. So they actually change their best frequency. So everybody, everybody kind of gets together and, and, and changes exactly where their best frequency is to do, to do the best job they can for the frequency that they need to sort of zoom in on. Well, so, so the, the hair cells themselves change the frequencies that are, they are tuned to. Yeah. So that you don't get confused what frequencies are. Oh, that's so how cool. Does a, how does a hair cell change what frequency it's tuned to? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, that's kind of the big, the big question. I, some of it is because of the 
the mechanics of the system because yeah. uh, I'm not exactly sure. I, I like I built it and it did this, and I was like, cool, that looks like the chinchilla. Yeah. Please give me a PhD. <laughs> um, but yes, I'm not exactly sure what what I feel like it's happening in the mechanical domain. Whether it's it's some sort of the the oscillator system because it, it's mainly in the mechanical domain, and the, the hair cell is kind of the output yeah. that just you know I. Send a send an ion and off we go in electrical land. Um, so I feel like it's the mechanical system that's somehow being changed. There, there's this organic corti that sits on the basilar membrane, which is where the outer hair cells are. Hmm. So there's inner hair cells which have basically they're like a spectrum analyzer and they just divide everything up into frequencies. The outer hair cells are really the bit that's giving us the 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 the, the tuned behavior and the, the kind of automatic gain control. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> um, so though that, those outer hair cells are, are the things that are changing the best frequency and, and changing the amplitude. Yeah. Um, and they're kind of embedded into another membrane called the pectoral membrane. And so there's this whole, there's, this, there's a lot to unpack from the biology of it. And yeah. I, I don't claim to be an expert on, on yeah. that part of it. I kind of, you know, part of being an engineer, um, and we kind of always say this as an engineer, we're, we're, just, we're not interested in getting everything right, we're just interested in getting something working. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the scientist in me wants to understand it all, but yeah. the, the engineer in me goes, this is the system mathematically <laughs> that I want to replicate, yeah. and I did that. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of interesting stuff going on. And I think that's why it's still so heavily studied, because it's a really interesting system that yeah. is, isn't like anything else. It's yeah. You know, everything else is sort of quite similar. Uh, and it is a kind of touch. Hearing is touch. Yeah. But it's just transduced in a bizarre and really cool way. That's fascinating. Yeah. That's interesting. So what are you, uh, like, researching at the moment? Are, uh, is this, yeah. are you still or working any, on the... Or any plans? Yeah. You, yeah. <laughs> I'm researching where to put my desk in my new room. Yeah. Can <laughs> 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 I write a PhD on Mapping that? Mapping where the sun comes in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Try, yeah. To, try to get the best sort of yeah, lighting for the whole mm. day. Um, at the moment, uh, let's see, what's on the books? Um, I'm sort of trying to get a postdoc to come over um, and where because we're at Macquarie there's a lot of hearing research there so we're cool. sort of looking at uh, a couple of things to do with cochlear implants and uh, improving them especially when you've got two cochlear implants so bidaural uh, hearing is, is yeah. something that's quite difficult to achieve and it, part of it is technological um, and part of it is that we just don't understand how how our ears synchronize and, and connect up with each other and um, and yeah, there's sort of lots of theories out there, but when you try to actually replicate them, they don't do as well as you think that, you know, something simple like sound localization is actually quite difficult if you follow the, you know, the, what, the, what is generally understood to be happening. And so it suggests that there's some other things going on there. So um, he's been working for a long time in the States with cochlear implant users, and so we're hoping to bring some of that here to Sydney and, and maybe look at some technological, like working with patients and then translating it. So that sound localization from what I remember from my physiology days, so there's, there's a few different mechanisms that they think are involved, right? The shape of the ear is one right. of it, but also I think the timing, isn't it? When, when the between one ear, between one ear and the other, is it? Yeah, yeah. So there's this model called Jeffers model, which 
it's, it's basically looking. It, it basically says there's a cross correlation between the two ears, and, and there's a you're looking for time difference, so interneural time um, delays between the two ears, which kind of makes sense, um, except that if you kind of plot it out, given our head size, we probably don't have very good. Um, you know, we don't have very good sound localization across where we want it, so there must be some other mechanisms. Now, some people say there's interaural level differences, so I hear something louder over here and softer over here, so that that might be it. Um, and there's also some other models which suggest that it might be looking at phase differences in, in when the sound wave comes in, and that's, that's kind of what some insects do. So they, they, they're too small to be able to localize because they've got such small heads. So they... So they basically do a, a destruction or a, an additive, um, you know, basically they just add the wave that's coming to them and they work out, you know, if, it, if they, it's coming from right in front, then they're going to add, or if it's coming from, you know, right over here, then they're going to subtract so you can work out which way the, um, which way the sound is coming from mm. just by doing phase um, cancellation. So, so that's so like when the sound waves are slightly um, out of alignment yeah. and, and they can that use that misalignment or alignment, whichever it happens to be, to To locate. work out which way, yeah, uh, rather than relying on a, a timing difference because there's, for a little insect, you, you <laughs> the timing difference is yeah, ridiculously yeah. fast compared to how fast a neuron can fire and how you know how big your head is so it sounds like a, a new great neuromorphic engineering <laughs> uh, project for someone yeah. um so I'm, I'm guessing you're taking on research students as well yes. and i think macquarie also has a master of research program yeah, similar to western yep. sydney yeah yeah, yeah. yeah i think they launched launched it six months before the um the one over here yeah, yeah, yeah. and so I was actually going to either choose to go here or over there, and one of my friends went over there. Um, so it's pretty cool. Okay, so uh, what projects would you have available besides the one with the postdoc? Do you have anything else that... I, I mean, you know, anything really. Uh, I've been doing, obviously, anything with neuromorphic hearing, even if you're interested in insects here. I, like, if you look at my CV, I do projects of whatever the student's interested yeah. in rather than what I'm interested in because awesome. yeah. I prefer to have a student that's really engaged in what they're doing. So I've I've been involved with all sorts of crazy stuff and it, it's it's fine because I, I learn something and I try to be supportive of, of you know, I don't like the, the academic pyramid scheme yeah. where... You know, <laughs> you end up being lord of one thing, and yeah. and then everyone must bow to your greatness. Um, so it's so sad, and I think it sort of a lot of good students get ferried into doing projects they're not passionate about. Yeah. Well, this gets back to what you were saying before about encouraging like people's passions and their curiosity, yeah. and not kind of quelling. And I think that. that should continue right yeah. through now. Like I, I will always try to get in co-supervisors or, or whatever to support it if I yeah. don't have a background mm. that's that's too solid um, but I'll always you know you just come to me you tell me what you're interested in and we will find a project yeah, I awesome. will find money we'll find a project because that's that's what that's what I like to do that's awesome yeah. <laughs> well uh, this has been a really fun conversation Tara and anyone who wants to get in contact with uh, Tara should just look her up on Google yeah. Um, it shouldn't be too hard to find you at all. Um, and if you're a researcher, I mean, come on. You should be able to do <laughs> <laughs> right? Um, we have a Google Scholar. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So thank you again for being on the podcast. Thanks we really had a lot of fun. Thank you.